Uh, my middle son just asked me how much longer. I said, Depen- <laughs> depends on how long I talk. Um, to which he's riveted now. Now he's riveted. Um, it is, it's a privilege to be with you all. Um, some of you may know, some of you may not, um, that I was a member of this church uh, as a young teenager, probably just barely older than Jack in the blue sweater there. Um, and somebody asked if I was a, a good kid or a, or a not good kid. I think my reputation was known for being a little rambunctious uh, here at the church. So uh, it's always interesting um, how God works and it's humbling uh, that I would be back here to preach to you all and to preach in this pulpit. Never exactly where I thought I'd be uh, when I was just a little bit older than Jack. Um, but it's also just a privilege, just a privilege to be with you all this morning and to be able to bring God's word to you. Uh, we are going to be in the book of Micah, if you want to turn there in, in your Bible. Uh, a minor prophet, uh, which is not a great name, a description uh, for his significance and his word that he brings. Uh, but it's how often we describe him in the Bible. It's in the back of the Old Testament. Uh, the book of Micah, the prophet Micah is prophesying around the same time as Isaiah. And the prophets did not have a great job. They were told to go tell the people usually and typically bad news. Uh, to remind them of things God had said, but also to typically remind them, particularly in Micah, that they had not been doing the things that God had asked them to be doing. In fact, he brings in the book of Micah a lawsuit against his people through Micah to say, you have been unrighteous, you have been oppressive, you have been uh, disobedient to my commands. And there are consequences for that, and the consequences or that I'm going to bring destruction upon you from the country and the nation of Assyria. And so it's not good news that's coming to the people of Israel through the prophet Micah. I would not want to be Micah bringing that word to these people. In Micah 6, 6-8, which we're going to look at this morning, uh, Micah responds with uh, kind of stepping in as the voice of the people. The voice of the people to say back to God, well, what, what can we do? What can we do to fix the situation? If we have sinned against God, if we have been disobedient, if the things we are doing are wrong and God's going to punish us for them, what can we do? What can we do to appease God? What can we do to respond? And that's the text that we'll be looking at this morning in Micah 6, chapter 6, verses 6 to 8. I'll read those now if you want to follow along. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, a man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Would you pray with me one more time? Father, I do pray this morning that you would speak to us, your people, that you'd speak to us here this morning through your word, that you would pour out your spirit through your word to teach us the same lesson, these same truths of who you are and what you require of your people. Micah was prophesying over 2000, about 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago. Lord, would you speak to us this morning as you spoke to these people? And would you show us who you are, what kind of God you are, 
and the calling that you have placed on our life that we might live more faithfully unto you. I pray these these things in Jesus in your name. Amen. So Micah has told the people, if you want to flip over just a couple pages to Micah chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, you can see some of the accusation and accusations that Micah is bringing against the people for their oppression for the things they have done. This is Micah chapter 2, verses 8. But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From, them, your, from their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for there is no place to rest because of the uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you all of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. That last phrase there, essentially what he's saying is you, you guys want, you people of Israel, you want this preacher who says things like, you know, you can drink and you can party and you can break laws, but don't go too far. You know, just go to the edge. Don't drink too much. Just get a little bit of drink and then you're okay. And what Micah is saying in that phrase is you want people to tickle your ears. You want a preacher to say the things that you want to hear. A little bit of, little bit of religion. Give the people a little bit of religion, but not too much. And that would be the preacher of this people. Earlier in those verses, he condemns the people for stripping the robe off someone with no thought of war. That basically a picture of using their oppression and power to steal. And they, they think there's going to be no consequences because they're the ones in power and they're the ones with money. So no one can fight back. Verse nine, he describes that you're driving women out of their houses and taking advantage of children. One of the key descriptions in um, following God and obeying God was to take care of the widow in the Old Testament. And it was a different law than we have today. The widow would have been without property, without inheritance. And so the people of God are supposed to care for the widow, to take care of her after her husband passes away, to make sure that she is taken care of, that she's provided for. And instead, this people are driving the widows out of their houses to get more rich themselves. They're taking advantage of children. Children are a heritage unto the Lord, a blessing, a a picture of beauty and of God's delight. And we see in the New Testament, Jesus saying, let the little children come to me, a picture of God's character and heart. And the people in in this time are taking advantage of children, making sure that they don't have houses off again for their own reward. And so Micah has come to these people to say, this is what the Lord is going to punish you for, for these sins, for this oppression. Here in Micah 6, 6 to 8, then, is the response that Micah steps in to ask. Well, then, then what do we do about it? If we have sinned against the Lord, what do we do about it? And there's um, a bit of sarcasm at times here. He says, well, what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? One commentator said it should be the question of every human heart. And yet so often in our culture, it's the question right now is nowhere near people's hearts or lives. And yet oppression runs high. And yet Micah goes on. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? This is a response that's in line with the Old Testament sacrificial system. 
He's saying in some sense this is not a bad response. Do we come with this? Do we come with the caviar oil? Do we come with the burnt offerings that you've responded with? And if it would have stopped there and, and maybe gone a little bit different direction, maybe that would have been a good response by the people to the Lord. But they go on to show the true nature of their hearts. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? That's a lot of rams. No one, Old Testament, that, that, no one would have that. That would be a wealth beyond what anyone here would have. And so you almost sense this building sarcasm, this building the question itself is not entirely genuine. With ten thousands of rivers of oil. That's a lot of oil. We have on our counter olive oil, little bottle. I don't think that would make a river. It might make a little trickle if I poured it down the counter. Ten thousands rivers of oil? That is a lot of oil. And Micah is asking and on behalf of the people and knows what he's doing. This is ridiculous. This is not what God has asked, but it's also something that no one could provide, that no one actually has or owns. But that doesn't, Micah doesn't stop there. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Now Micah has gone a step even too far. Because it's very clear in the Old Testament that God does not want the sacrifice of children as the pagan religions around them. As the religions around them and the people around them often sacrifice, human sacrifice, or their children. God has explicitly in his word said, I do not want that. And every Israelite would know, even from the story of Abraham, that even in that situation... God did not ask for the sacrifice of Isaac, but provided a ram, provided a substitute. And so there's this building response, which in some ways shows the true heart of the people that Micah is asking on their behalf of what shall we really do? But they're, they're really not asking the question in many ways. They're providing things and asking in ways that God has not asked for them to respond to him. One of the great things that Micah is condemning them for is having being people that worship God, that go to church, that go to the temple, but whose lives not just do not look like God, but are filled with lives of oppression and injustice, lives of unrighteousness, not righteousness. And so they worship God and they go to temple, but they oppress people. And for this, God is going to punish them. And so then Micah gets to verse eight. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. You might ask, well, though familiar to us, somebody told me after uh, a couple weeks ago that this um, this verse is in the Library of Congress over the religion section. If you walked into the Library of Congress in the religion section over the arch is printed that verse, Micah 6, 8. And maybe you're familiar with that. But really, what is Micah saying? Where has God told them? That, where has God told these people that he requires justice and, and to love kindness? And that word kindness there, we don't have time to jump into every word here and its meaning. But that word kindness is steadfast love. It's hased. It's the covenantal love of God. 
And they're told to love God's kind of love, steadfast love, love that the prophet Hosea will say God loves as his people, even though they are like a prostitute who has betrayed them over and over and committed adultery on him. God still loves his people, though they are like that. That kind of love they are to love in their own hearts and to practice and reflect in their lives and to walk humbly with their God. Where, where, where has God told them this? Where is this that God has said to do these things versus the other sacrifices? If you want to turn back in your Bible to the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy is the book of the law. It's Moses giving the law to God's people one last time as a summation. But before he will die, as he has been told, he will not go into the promised land. And so he's giving the law again to his people, to the people of Israel. The first time was given at Mount Sinai, and now he gives it to them again in this book. And he's reminding them of the things that God told them after he saved them from Egypt and met with them at Mount Sinai. In Deuteronomy 10, verses 12, God Moses says this to the people of Israel. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? Sounds familiar. But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him and to serve your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you, Today for your good. Behold, the Lord your God belonged heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day. That is Hesed. God has chosen these people. He has put his love on them. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. By his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God. And so here in Deuteronomy, Moses is reminding the people, what does God require? He requires your heart, your soul, your everything to fear him and to love him and to follow him and to obey him. Why? Why should these people fear him and love him and serve him and honor him? Because he set his love on them. By redeeming them out of Egypt, by delivering them from Pharaoh, and he has provided for them since they have left Egypt. And he says in the next chapter, you have seen with your own eyes the mighty things that God has done in defeating kings, in providing manna, in taking care of you ever since he delivered you out of Egypt, saved you from slavery from Pharaoh. And protected and provided for you all the way through to this point where you're now about to enter the promised land that God had promised before. So you have seen what God has done. You have yourselves experienced it. Now, therefore, because of that, because you've seen those things, because you've seen his love and his provision, fear him and serve him and obey him with all that you are. And do the things that God does in his character. 
Do the things of justice. Do not take bribes because God doesn't take a bribe. Execute justice for the fatherless and the widow. Deuteronomy. Provide for the sojourner, a word that would, for us today, would be the immigrant. For you yourselves were sojourners, immigrants in Egypt. Provide for those people who do not have the way to provide for themselves. This is what it looks like to love God. To do God's justice. To be godly in the way that you live. You've seen what God has done. You've seen his love. You've experienced it. Now be godly in all that you do because that is what God wants from you. That is what Micah is saying in Micah 6.8. You know what God requires of you. If you have experienced his love, if you have experienced his his sin, if you know the one true God, the living God, and you've experienced his justice, his love, his kindness towards you, then you cannot but do that yourself. What Micah is saying is those who know God do the things God does. Those who understand God's righteousness Live lives of righteousness. You see his rebuke to the people of Israel. You're saying you know God. You're saying you're the leaders. You're saying you're the ones who represent God. And yet your lives are unjust. They're oppressive to the, to the women of this land. To the children of this land. To those who would walk by. You strip their robe. And so Micah is condemning them. Now, at this point, you might say, well, you know, that this is a little Old Testament. Right. I thought the story of the gospel of of Scripture was about God's love for us. If you want to turn over in Mark, the gospel of Mark, chapter 12, we're going to look briefly at this to see if there's a connection between the Old Testament and New Testament which many of you would probably say there is, and I'm going to argue that there is. In Mark chapter 12, we'll be looking in verse, beginning in verse 28. And Jesus has an interaction with the scribes and the Pharisees, and one scribe in particular. And the more I've studied this and reflected on this, I really do think that Micah 6, 6-8, as well as the Old Testament, is in the, exact, is in the direct background of this conversation between Jesus and, and a scribe. I'm reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. Imagine saying that to Jesus. You have truly said that he is the one and there's no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as yourself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Sound like Micah 6. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. 
this interaction between the scribe and Jesus, the same thing is happening. What is the most important commandment? Is it to go to church? Is it to give a certain amount of tithes? Is it to make sure that you have really good prayers in public that are very theological? What is the most important thing? And Jesus says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, to love your neighbor as yourself. And this scribe, who understands his Old Testament very well, says that's exactly right. That's exactly what the whole Old Testament is about. Loving God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, which leads to loving your neighbor as yourself. To which Jesus responds, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Well, if he understands the whole Testament, what's he missing? What's the missing piece? The next verses are about the Messiah. Verse 35, Gospel of Mark says this, As Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. I don't think it's any accident that Mark immediately begins to connect Jesus and the Messiah. Jesus as the Messiah, as the missing link between what is taking place in the Old Testament and the commands to love God and to love your neighbor as right living that God requires. I want to read a couple more verses here in Mark 12, and then we'll conclude all this together. Verse 39, the next verses here say, In his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. See, now Jesus begins to sound like Micah again. He's declaring that the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel, the religious leaders in Jerusalem are just like the Old Testament people at the time of Micah. They're taking advantage of people. They're living lives of injustice and unrighteousness. The people they're taking advantage of are widows and children. And they like to be seen and heard. and They make long prayers in public. Um, I don't know how it was at your house at the holidays. But no one in our house at the holidays wanted to be at the children's table. That was the place of dishonor. Even our children didn't want to be at the children's table. And then there was uh, a scene at our children's table of who would have the place of honor at the children's table, which of course is the highest and most comfortable chair. And there was a tip over it. I get to sit at the highest chair that overlooks the children's table, right? And then ministering to college students, talk to them as those who were still relegated to the children's table, though they're 18 or 19 or 20. One student chimed up, I'm 20 years old. I'm still stuck at the kids' table. There's a place of honor. There's a place of at the adult's table, the the table of great feasting, right? Even within our families and the scribes and the Pharisees, it's the same thing. They want to be at those tables. And so Jesus is condemning them again. You're just like the people of Israel at Micah's time. You're just like them. You take advantage of the widow and the child, the orphan. And your religion is meaningless because it does not reflect who God is. 
that those who really understand God do justice and love has said and walk humbly with God, not in great pride before others so that they see their works and hear their prayers. And we'll conclude with this, that God, Jesus himself, offers the counterexample in the next verses. So what's the response? If we're not supposed to be like the scribes, if we're supposed to live lives of righteousness, what does that actually look like? Well, Jesus has an illustration and an offering. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. Now, we don't necessarily today have the same category as widow. But I thought a little bit about this passage, and I, I thought about uh, the difference between um, we passed at our church, our home church, we passed the offering plate. The difference between those who give according to their tithe and those who give out of all they have. Imagine a picture of a child that as the offering plates are being passed, that a man puts in a check. And let's say he put in a $500 check. It's something. It's helpful. That maybe is 10% of a $60,000 salary. You can check my math later. But he puts in his 10%, right? And maybe he puts that check in, you know, folded, but, but it can open so that maybe other people see as the plates pass along. And as he passes the plate, a child takes a cardboard box with tape, maybe some drawings on it, and he just dumps that box into the offering. And it amounts to 78 cents. And someone afterwards goes to the child and says, well, what, did, what is that money? Where'd you get that money? And the child says, that's the money I've been scrounging for all year. We have small children. There are often pillows on the ground as people dig in couches, under couches, for change, for quarters, for pennies. There have certainly been fights in our houses over pennies. At one point, I was in the YMCA, and one of my children had their, was lying on the ground sideways with their arm under the vending machine. And I said, what in the world are you doing? In a different voice than I just used. And they said, sometimes people leave change down here. <laughs> Right? That's a child's life. But imagine that that child dumped their, their year gatherings. And someone said to them, what did, what did you do that for? And the child responded, out of everything that God has done for me, I had to give him everything I had. And that's all that I have. And what Jesus is saying to these people is I don't need money. And God doesn't need money. He has money. He has called you to tithe. He has called you to be faithful. He's called you to be obedient. But I don't need money. I have a cattle on a thousand hills. I need that child's heart. I need that child's heart in him and in you and in me. And that is what it looks like to love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And to give to him all that you have. And to do justice and to walk humbly. I'll conclude with this. You may be thinking at this point, 
Um, Mr. RUF guy, we read Romans 3 earlier. Um, this sounds quite legalistic. Romans 3 says no one can attain righteousness through the law. It's all by faith. So how does, how does this square with that? I thought as Reformed Presbyterians, we were all about faith and faith alone through grace alone. This sounds awfully legalistic to me. An Old Testament. Conclude with this. Remember that Jesus was so committed to doing justice that he experienced absolute injustice and had the wrath of God poured out on him so that he might satisfy the justice of God and so that we, through him, might be justified before God. Jesus so loved justice that he experienced absolute injustice so that we might be justified before God. God the Father so loved has said and so lived it that he did give his only son to die for his enemies, which were us living in sin. He did not call anyone else to it. But God so loves has said he does give his only son for us to die for others. And Jesus humbled himself all the way to a cross. And we are to humble ourselves to one another and bow before him, bow on our knees and confess that Jesus Christ alone is Lord as we look to him who humbled himself. It is not the law through which we are saved. None of us will perfectly do justice or love love or walk humbly with God. But one did perfectly love justice and love love and walk humbly before God. And we put our faith in him as we ourselves seek to live lives of godly righteousness in this world. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are the one who is truly a God of justice. And that your picture of love is so overwhelming as we look and see that you did give your only son for us. And that that son, the, the only son of heaven... God himself, the God-man, humbled himself. Humbled himself to be born in an animal's feeding trough in a barn. And humbled himself to a cross. So that we might not experience the wrath of God. But that so we might have life and life eternal. Father, we are thankful. Jesus, we are thankful to you. Nothing we can do can earn it. For living the life of perfect justice and love and humility. And that we have faith in you and in that as our righteousness and nothing else. But Father, you do call us to be people of justice and love and humility. Forgive us as we've already confessed this morning of our sins. Our sins of pride. Our sins of injustice. Our sins of of self-love over others' love. Father, would you more and more be making your people, this people, the people you have called yourself, your church, people of justice and your kind of love and humility. Let none of us be those who offer long prayers in important places, but be those who seek to do your will humbly. That that no one else might see our good works, but we may do them alone unto you. Make us like a widow who gives all that she has 
Make us like a child who gives everything to you because you have given your son to us. Would you do this for your kingdom's sake and for your glory? Pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.